G'day, I'm Luke Tipple. Happy Shark Week and welcome to The Daily Vibe, the show where we go behind the scenes with the stars of Shark Week and talk about one of our favorite subjects, sharks. Today we're joined by Chris Fallows and Alison Towner to dive into the latest installment of the Air Jaws franchise, Air Jaws Going for Gold. Let's have a listen. The highest flying great white ever recorded. It was a shot seen around the world, 15 feet in the air. Wow! Now, incredible! One year later, a new group of sharks has come to Mossel Bay to try to break that record. Wow, that is flipping amazing! Well, it seems like it's game on for white sharks in Mossel Bay this year. Welcome to The Daily Bite, Chris and Alison. Chris, good to have you back, mate. Uh, welcome. It's great to be back, uh, Luke, and um, really looking forward to chatting about some amazing shows and incredible shark action we had this year. Awesome. And Alison, your first time on The Daily Bite. Thank you so much for your time. Hi. Thanks so much, Luke. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Good deal. Well, Chris, let's start with you. You're kind of like the godfather of Air Jaws and the activity down there in uh, South Africa. Um, we've heard rumors of white sharks kind of moving around and disappearing and stuff like that. Could you give us just a general update about what's going on down there with the whites? Sure. So we, we've seen uh, the white sharks practically disappear from both False Bay and At On occasion, we've had a few white sharks come back. But by and far, the bulk of the sharks are, are now in Mossel Bay, and um, that's why we're spending most of our time there these days. There are also regular sightings a little bit further east up the coast at Plettenberg Bay, and then uh, also at a place called Algoa Bay. But for the time being, the population seems to have uh, the highest density around uh, Mossel Bay. And um, what's your opinion of that? Like, over so many years of watching the activity there, is it kind of new stuff? Are we just seeing you know, cycles of, of presence and activity, migration, perhaps? Um, there are lots of different opinions. I, I feel that uh, the overfishing of the smaller prey species of the white sharks, so specifically smaller sharks, has had a huge amount to do with it. We know that white sharks move inshore for substantial portions of every year. They, they're at the seal colony for a portion of the year, and then they move inshore to feed on these smaller sharks. And certainly in the case of, of False Bay, where I've been privileged to work for 30 years, in all the areas where we used to see these smaller sharks, they're no longer there. So we've seen the white sharks over probably a decade or so slowly altering their behavior. And then in around about 2014, we saw a massive decline begin. And uh, that's continued to the present. So it's a, a very worrying long-term trend. And uh, we certainly hope that things will rectify themselves and I guess better fisheries management will start looking after those smaller prey species. So there's actually a lot to unpack there. Um, let's dive into kind of like the more conservation side of things a little later. There's some things I really want to know from both yourself and Alison, but um, let's turn to this year's installment of Air Jaws. <laughs> you guys have been doing this forever. Um, it was actually, I watched the show and I really enjoyed it. It was like so simple. The premise is really simple, but there's some really solid science in there and it's just a lot of fun. So um, tell everyone what the premise this year is. Well, following on from last year's in incredible breach that we got of that young rocket shark that leapt 15 foot into the air and I think captured the world's attention. I think pretty much every newspaper and billboard around the world had a flying great white shark on it. 
And it was an obvious choice to go back to Mossel Bay and see if we could find this little Olympian and uh, see if a couple of his friends and, and buddies could do the same thing. And that was essentially the premise of the show, just to see what these amazing sharks are really capable of, just to see if different individuals use different techniques. And uh, along with renowned scientists, Alison Tana and Dr. Enrico Gennari, we really saw some truly amazing breaches, some incredible behavior, and, and learned a, a few new insights into these remarkable animals that we've all come to love so much over the years. Uh, it, was, it was definitely a visually stunning show to watch. And if you haven't seen it at home, uh, the show is essentially like a, almost like an Olympics of sharks. And we're looking at uh, the different heights and speeds and achievements of the sharks during this breach activity. And it's, it's really fun to watch and it's pitched as a competition, but what we're really doing is learning about science. So, Alison, perhaps you can dive into the science of what the show is about. Yeah, I mean, Luke, you hit the head on uh, the nail on the head there with the, the you know the Olympic theme and the entertainment value. That's the nice thing about Shark Week is you know it really uses that platform of blending in really fun cinematography, really interesting facts, but not making it too much either way. So we actually have fun filming it, and of course, South Africa is world renowned for its white sharks jumping out of the water. It's it's not seen quite like that anywhere else. Um, so for us, yeah, really, it was just a, an opportunity to show America uh, primarily just what these, you know, Olympic white sharks are capable of and, and unpack a little bit more detail about each breach. So as Chris said, we touch on speed, we touch on height, obviously the breach that was captured by Air Jaws last year, um, that shark went super high and it really, you know, it highlighted the fact that these animals don't just launch themselves out the water, but they seriously clear some air. Um, and so, yeah, for, for a change without it being so heavy on all the, you know, um, the conservation angle, it was just it was just a real nice opportunity for us all to, to sit back, enjoy and, um, and see and let the shark show us what they're capable of naturally. And you guys, I mean, certainly the crew look like they're having a bunch of fun. You know, the whole premise is go out, have fun, see white sharks jump out of the water. Hell yeah. Right. Um, how long is this? Like one of the things that I hear about, you know, particularly South Africa, but people expect that when they go there, they're going to see sharks just jumping out of the water left, right and center because, you know, we watch a 45 minute show we see constant breaches and we look at boats that are just getting hit all the time how long did that take to film and how infrequent are the breaches when you guys are around towing the decoys yeah i mean chris will, will, will testify this as well white sharks don't just breach all the time um of course there are many days we spend out there where absolutely nothing happens and then all of a sudden usually towards nth day of the film shoot you know then it uh then all of a sudden it'll just go off and um of course this is a natural predatory behavior white sharks have they you know cake fur seals are super agile as a prey species they're fast so white sharks have learned to hit them at full speed is actually the way to, uh, to, to make a successful kill. And as winter months progress, the Cape fur seal is a really smart animal too, and it learns how to evade shark predation throughout the course of the months. So if we were to film shark week or these breaches throughout the whole course of winter, what we'd start to find is towards the end of the season, the, the breaching activity would actually drop right off. So yeah, as much as it always looks on shark week, like we get a ton of breaches and it's always firing off here, there are many days that it's, uh, it takes a lot of patience. And not only that, you know, the conditions need to be right. Um, it's, it obviously costs them a lot of energy to, 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 to launch at the surface like that. So, yeah, I think Chris can obviously uh, also touch on the fact that we don't get that lucky every day. <laughs> yeah, well, Chris, I mean, you've spent so much time out there. 
you know, working with, you know, sharks is quite a difficult thing. Logistically, what do you plan for when you go to make one of these shows? Are you out there for a week? Are you out there pre-filming? Are you using footage that you might have captured before? What is the predictability out there? Well, Luke, in every show, we're hoping to get original and, and new footage. Um, sometimes before the main body of the crew arrives, we'll go and try and get a little bit of footage ourselves if we get a really great weather gap. But it really is a, a case of, you know, trying to predict based on a lot of experience when we, we foresee the best time of the year actually being for the activity. And then, you know, there's a, there's a huge degree of luck that comes into this. Weather can be a, a real killer to these documentaries. You know, we are down at the southern tip of Africa and as such, we, we have a lot of volatile weather coming past our coastline. So, you know, it's, it's at the hands of the gods, really, whether the sharks are going to be interacting, whether the, whether the weather's going to allow us to do what we need to do. You can really get a cold patch of water coming in. There's so many variables that come into this. And then, you know, they're the, the technical challenges. We're using a, a lot of new technology all the time. We work with some of the most amazing uh, cinematographers out there and then legendary producer and director, you know, Jeff Kerr, he's always bringing am amazing ideas that uh, we, we test out with every, every new show we do. So there are a lot of moving parts out there and I can tell you, you, you don't get to see a lot of the days where we all sit there looking at each other and uh, half of us are seasick, the other half are wondering what the hell's going on and um, yeah, there are many days spent in frustration for those few memorable fleeting moments that you see on camera. Well, we have to give you a hat tip for being the guy who gets out there and, and gets all this footage. And we've all seen Great Whites breaching throughout Shark Week. Uh, but this show has some of the most spectacular breaches we've ever seen. Uh, let's check out a few of the best ones. Looks like time goal. She missed the decoy at first, but then watch this. In mid-air, she does a full somersault. Mouth is still open, probably trying to feel for the decoy with her jaws. She's more or less blind at this point and using all her other senses to find the prey. Got some decent airs you can see on shark vision and then smacks down with the tail. She could potentially disable or kill a seal with a smack down like that. So that was genuinely surprising to me, seeing some of the just beautiful shots and the way you guys like lined it up specifically, just as a cinematographer, I'm looking at it. You guys are towing with the sun in the background and, you know, the phantoms going and the sharks are just breaching in front of it. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, Chris, I'm curious, over the years filming out there, are you seeing any changes in the behavior or the, the sizes of the breaches, like any learning or modification? Well, you know what we, we have learned over the years, specifically working at Seal Island in, in False Bay, is that certain individual sharks seem to prefer certain areas. So <clears throat> you, get, you get certain sharks that, just like humans, use their own tactics and own strategies. I wouldn't say we've, we've specifically noticed sharks jumping higher or faster or doing anything like that. But what we have certainly learned is the individual, individuality of each, each creature we're seeing out there. And that for me has been fascinating and it's only something you really learn, you know, by spending a lot of time on the water is to firstly identify these individual sharks and then see how they got their own specific area they prefer to hunt in and their own specific techniques. And we saw over the years that certain sharks are more successful than others. And I think that was one of the premises behind uh, Jeff Kerr's show this year was really to look and see if these individual sharks were, you know, using different techniques and those diff different techniques resulted in these unbelievably high trajectory breaches. 
Um, and that, that was fascinating, you know, just to see how some sharks really do put 100% into every single attack. And then there are others that kind of buy their time and, and seem to, you know, really only use the energy where they feel that they've got a 100% chance of catching their prey. So, yeah, it's a culmination of, of a lot of field work that results in, in the ideas behind trying to capture the specific images. And you're quite right in terms of what you said about the cinematography. You know, we, we, it's, it's not just by chance that there's a beautiful sunrise or sunset or fantastic background there. We choose our weather very carefully and, and uh, we pay a huge amount of attention to getting these, these beautiful backgrounds. Because if the truth be told, Mossel Bay, let's say, has got a couple of backgrounds that are, are not the prettiest in the world. So we, we generally focus on on the really sexy ones and, and really trying to showcase the shark in as magnificent a way as possible. Oh, Chris, definitely nailed it this year, that's for sure. Um, one of the comments in the show that I found really fascinating was, uh, you know, breaching uh, is perhaps a learned behavior, something that the sharks are picking up uh, from a juvenile through to sub-adult. Um, Alison, could you maybe elaborate on that? What, what is the evidence for it being learned? Yeah, I mean, that's basic predator ecology, right? I mean, uh, even as humans, we're not born, a, you know, efficient, um, efficient in, in eating everything. We have to learn our ability to, uh, to, to eat. So, yeah, I mean, this is general predator ecology. We've spent over 500 hours uh, acoustically tracking white sharks in the Hansby region where I'm based, which is different to False Bay where, where Chris has done most of his work. Uh, we have a lot of kelp around the island there. And what's really fascinating is we found juvenile young white sharks occupying completely different activity spaces to the larger animals. It's almost like a, a pecking order for school dinners. So the smaller, younger sharks have less optimal hunting spots that they're patrolling, basically because they're pushed out by the more experienced sharks. And I know Neil and Chris have actually found something similar around Seal Island as well. So certainly the youngsters have to learn the strategies. Obviously, they get more refined at it over time. Um, and, and I guess I suppose over, over the decades that we've all been working on our different areas, Muscle Bay is kind of known as a more juvenile site. So, um, yeah, I guess these individuals are at their point now where they're also just learning how to get it right. And sometimes they do get it wrong. Uh, and yeah. likewise, if you get the mature animals or the larger animals pulling in, they might also just decide it's not worth it today. Whereas, you know, the youngsters will still, still give it a go. So, yeah, we, as much as it's all about getting these shots, we do often learn quite a lot just from seeing, you know, all these different size demographics uh, naturally hunting or trying to predate. So, yeah, speaking of like natural predation, and I promise this isn't a loaded question. I am going somewhere with this, but I, I do have to ask, you know, if you're out there filming in a fairly predictable place, you're towing decoys around that it's a, a learned behavior. Um, is it possible that doing this in itself is accelerating the learning process of the juvenile sharks or perhaps modifying their hunting strategies? The thing is, it's done for such an infrequent time period. It's usually the golden hour, a couple of hours of the morning, and then they're left, you know, to their own devices. And as I said, over time throughout winter, they actually learn, the seals, they learn to evade the sharks. So, I mean, there's not really been any rigorous research done into whether towing decoys has specifically trained the sharks into hunting better. That's not something we can certainly say has been validated. Um, I think if it was a daily process and it was happening every single day and they were getting some kind of reward for it, maybe. But remember, at the end of the day, when they go for that decoy, they're not getting any reward. It's soft foam. Yeah. Um, and plus, there's a bunch of seals on that rock that they're going to get natural food from when they go back to their normal behavior anyway. So, yeah, I, I don't think that there's any I, I don't see that as a loaded question. It's, it's a logical question, but certainly yeah. we don't we don't see anything like that. 
Well, I guess, you know, the loaded side of that might be, you know, some critics saying, you know, if you're out there enticing sharks with anything, and this goes for anywhere where we work, you know, when I work out in, you know, Tiger Beach or Guadalupe or any of these places, there's always that contingent of people who are saying, you know, if you're baiting or attracting these sharks in one way or another, you run the risk. And all they really are thinking about is how does this affect the swimmers in the water? So kind of where I was going with this is uh, speaking of breaching specifically, it's a fairly prey-specific behavior, right? They're just going after the seal. So how does that differ from the Great White's other hunting strategies, which somebody actually might encounter when they're sitting on a surfboard, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's a really complex dynamic. Obviously, sharks inshore are going to behave completely differently to those hunting surface at a seal colony. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Mm. You know, and obviously you say you've been working in Tiger Beach and all these different areas with different species of sharks. So we've got different different types of baiting, different types of pre, um, predatory behavior, different types of residency periods of sharks. So there's loads to look at. Is that animal that, for example, is, is patrolling a beach that may encounter a surfer? Is it a juvenile? Is it an adult? Is it passing through? Is it hanging out for a few weeks? Is it resting and digesting its prey? Is it actively hunting? So, I mean, from a scientific angle, it is really difficult to try and even begin to attempt to explain, you know, what what scientifically could be at stake there. Um, I don't know, Chris, if you have any thoughts. Well, Chris, actually, um, let me give you some more material here to work with because um, you're out there so much. I'm curious, seeing the natural predations, as I'm sure you do, um, versus the decoys, um, how successful are the sharks usually on perhaps hitting the decoys versus hitting the, the live predations and, you know how much work do they have to put into to each meal that they might actually successfully get? Okay, so let's start with the decoys and and predations. From um, recording just over 10,400 predatory events over the last um, 30 years, we recorded the white sharks being successful on 49.6% of all occasions. So let's call it 50%. Um, In terms of the success on decoys, it's very hard to quantify because you don't really know when they're unsuccessful and that decoy is not moving in an erratic sort of way it's following a a regular track on the surface unlike a seal that's doing exactly the opposite so I think if a white shark commits to the decoy it kind of never misses but what was really really interesting was that uh, we did a study I don't know maybe about 10 or 15 years ago where we towed decoys at night so there was no visual way that the sharks were actually seeing the decoy. It was on moonless nights in very bad visibility where if you were underwater, you you almost couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Mm. And these sharks hit those decoys with unerring accuracy. It was, it was quite incredible. So what we surmised from that was that sound and vibration play a huge part in the white sharks initially locating and honing in on on their prey. And that makes a lot of sense because what we also noticed at Seal Island is that one of the favored times for the white shark to hunt was in that half an hour to 45 minutes before sunrise. So Mm. you have very, very low light levels. And, you know, I, I guess that really pays testimony to the white shark's incredible sensory ability of picking up minute vibration and sound in the water. You actually, I mean, you've got two pieces that are very, very active in the water, right? You've got the boat and then you've got the decoy behind you. 
uh, you're saying that you know the sound vibration of the decoy is uniquely causing them to, to breach on that, or do you think that they're investigating the entire thing and then hitting what seems like the obvious uh, target for them? Well, that's a great question, and um, I think they, they probably investigate both, but mm. I think there are also cues that resonate with them as to being a specific sized animal. A specific sized object is going to probably make a specific sized frequency of noise and vibrations through the water. So my guess would be that they are able to discern what is fits within the size parameters of their natural prey and probably hone in on that. We also, uh, about 25 years ago, did a, a shape discrimination study with a, a prominent shark scientist from Santa Barbara, Dr. Rocky Strong, Mm -hmm. where we utilized all different sizes and shapes to ascertain what the specific size range was of the prey. And it was quite interesting when the prey got below, well, when the decoys got below a certain size, and that, that was roughly around about a foot and a half in length, so pretty small, the sharks showed no interest whatsoever. And, and, and by the converse, when they got over uh, around about six foot in length, the amount of attacks on those decoys dropped off dramatically and that fits in with virtually the exact size parameters we see of them feeding on the seals naturally so there was a very specific range and size that dictated how um how regularly those sharks would attack those specific size decoys what was also interesting is we towed decoys that looked exactly like seals mm. and then we towed uh, inanimate shapes so a triangle and a square and it was done on the, the throw of a dice. So there was absolutely no, no bias. You'd either have a square on one side and the seal shape on the other or a triangle. And we determined that by the throw of the dice. And what we found is no matter what the shape was, provided it fell within a specific size range, that was then the cue for the white sharks to attack it. When they were both stationary, so if you put a, a seal-shaped decoy on the surface and you put a triangle on the surface, the sharks were far more likely to approach the more regular uh, prey sort of shape, so the seal in other words. So really, movement and size were the keys to actually triggering, triggering those attacks. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, during the show, uh, you're talking about the, you know, the individual nature's characteristics and personalities of these sharks. And I wonder, as we're, we discussed, with these sharks sort of learning uh, over time and being more prey-specific as they get you know, smaller to older, you know, to bigger, um, if that plays into it as well. Like if uh, an older shark would hit something that's slightly larger uh, in size uh, on that same decoy. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. What we found at Seal Island was that the sharks were generally within a, a certain size range. Mm. You, obvi you obviously got outliers, but in the years that we had large numbers of great whites at Seal Island, the average white shark we saw there was 3.6 meters, so around about 12 foot in length. And about 10% of all our sharks were over 4.2 meters. So Essentially, 90% of the sharks were 4.2 meters to, to just around 2.8 meters in length. And those sharks are typically animals that are feeding on agile, fast-moving prey. When the sharks got over that size, we stopped seeing them coming to the island on a frequent basis. And what we, we noticed was that for those really large animals, if they missed the seal on the initial strike, the agility of that seal made it very difficult for those huge sharks, bearing in mind these animals weigh two, 3,000 pounds, 
and are, you know, 14, 15 foot in length, for them to turn and maneuver themselves in a way that they could line up those agile seals was very, very difficult. So I think the, the effort for reward, uh, you know, the, the larger those sharks actually got, the energy return probably wasn't worth their while to chase those those smaller seals anymore. And, and obviously you have different locations around the world where you see different behavior. Yeah. The Farallon Islands been a, a, a very good example of that where, you know, the white sharks there to a less or greater degree are also targeting uh, northern elephant seals. So they use a different strategy. They typically go in and b- disable the movement of those seals by biting or biting the hind flippers or biting towards the back and let them bleed out. And by doing that, you know, they get this huge food reward. You know, those seals can weigh several thousand pounds themselves. So it's different strategies for different size sharks feeding on different prey. And, um, you know, you, you see a, a lot of that in different locations. And, and also really of interest was that what we noticed whenever we had a, a dead whale, and I was lucky enough to see five of those different events over the years. And, I, and that's truly the holy grail of watching great whites yeah. on things. We noticed that the moment these dead whales were in an area, suddenly you started seeing huge great white sharks. White sharks we weren't seeing around Seal Island. So these animals, to some extent, are probably cruising the ocean, waiting to pick up on the scent of a dead whale or a large food source like that, and then will come in and literally gorge themselves to the point of almost looking like they would explode. I remember one individual was so fat, by the second day of feeding on the carcass, the shark literally swam into the carcass, was so exhausted from eating so much, just <laughs> like us to eat like three hamburgers, barely couldn't open its mouth, and then just sunk away like a stricken 747 <laughs> aircraft. And, you know, these mass feeding events certainly seem to attract a, a different class of animal. Well, that's a, a brilliant segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, the... Uh, the lazy sharks, uh, the character- characterization of different sharks and their behaviors that you guys saw on this show, which I thought was really fun and also, you know, a, a good way to learn about the different personalities of sharks and their also uh, behaviors. So, Alison, perhaps you could tell us about these different sort of lazy versus super aggressive sharks that you guys found. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always really interesting to me. Like you say, you've got personalities and, and completely in agreement with Chris's uh, prior talk there about the, the different locations at Dyer Island. We had one one animal that was around 12 foot that unfortunately didn't survive. But uh, when we necropsied him, he had six full Cape fur seals packed into his stomach and they were all at the same level of decomposition. Um, and we couldn't conclude what killed this animal. So, mm. you know, the consensus was, was that death by gluttony? Was that literally like a food coma? <laughs> we, we, you know, because obviously, I mean, there was no room left in his stomach. So, mm. so yeah, I mean, you definitely get differences of demographic between different size categories and, and different personalities. And then you get the white sharks. For example, I've seen it many times in the past in Shark Alley at Dyer Island, where it looks like it is a potentially fresh kill floating on the surface, but then the dorsal fin kind of slices past it and completely ignores it. So mm. maybe because the prey is so profitable in the area and, you know, maybe they seek fresher prey, some individuals, you know, like, again, they probably all have their own preferences for what, what diet composition they, they, they prefer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, on this shoot in, in Mossel Bay, certainly Chris always seems to get these Olympic springers that, you know, definitely can't be quantified as lazy if we want to go scientific. Um, But yeah, I mean, we all had different animals and we, you know, on different days, they felt some of them felt more active than others, I guess. Um, And with that breaching technology, obviously what you really want is is the animal to be as high up in the air as possible to look spectacular. 
But the reality is sometimes they don't fully commit. And it's what we call sort of not even a lunge. And on, on last year's show in, in Rico, in Rico's disco, Sila Lissa did two pretty nice lunges, but they weren't your, your typical right up out the water. It's kind of like a, ah, oh, give it a hard don't worry about it versus the I have to have that right now type of activity um I mean you guys got kind of a mixed bag between that sort of lazy and the super spectacular and that is part of the nature of the competition which I thought was really fun uh, so let's check out a couple of the examples from the breach that was described as lazy to one of the most spectacular shots I've ever seen of a white shark so not a huge breach, but a very pretty one. You can see the shark grabbing the tail end of the decoy. If this was a real seal, it most likely would have escaped. We were just talking about lazy breaches, and this breach by Lawazi is a very good example of that. Not a lot of speed, not a lot of air, and most likely not a kill for the shark. Full Polaris attack probably originated in deep water and then when she saw the decoy, no hesitation. Just magnificent. So Chris, I mean, you've captured so many of these shots. What was special to you in this show about what you were able to film? Luke, I'm really now focusing on fine art wildlife photography, specifically looking at iconic species on the planet. And for me, to have a white shark breaching, you know, very close to the camera and, and getting 12, 15 foot into the air with a fantastic background, uh, you know, was, I, I guess it's a dream come true, really. You know, last year's, last year's shot that we managed to get <clears throat> went globally viral. The, the world just couldn't get enough of it. And mm. we thought, you know, how are we ever going to beat that? And, um, yeah, this year we got another one that, as you quite correctly said, is, is simply mind-blowing. And, I think, you know, from a photographic point of view, for me, it, it really finally did justice to the athleticism of these animals. And it's very fitting that we're in a year of the Olympics because ultimately the great white shark and the Cape fur seal, you couldn't get better examples of Olympians. You know, if you, if you look at the prey, you, a Cape fur seal will spend three to five days at sea. It's subjected to some of the roughest worst sea conditions on the planet, diving repetitively to depths of, of hundreds and hundreds of feet, often in the dark. Then it has to make its way back home to exactly the same location it came from using its inbuilt GPS. And then just before it gets home, it has to dodge, duck and dive the most formidable mm. fish in the ocean. And, you know, that's a basically a marathon swimming event, getting past Olympic sprinters every time you get there. And then from the, the shark's point of view, you're looking at an animal that has to catch a, a, a prey item that's capable of detecting unbelievably small vibrations, is probably one of the most agile creatures on the planet. So you have these David and Goliath contests of perfectly matched strengths. And, I, 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 you know, to me, it's like working at the Coliseum every day. You have these <laughs> gladiators coming in there, giving it their all. And just like it was in the old days, it's a life and death battle and it's, it's always very humbling to be part of it, and I never ever lose lose respect for both predator or prey. It's it's um it's a monumental battle that you see being played out before your eyes, and it's survival of the very fittest and very best, just like the Olympics. Yeah, I, we talk a lot about the white shark, but the prey is equally as impressive. I'm curious when uh, when the fur seals are aware of the presence of a white shark, you know, when they know that it's around, whether it's a mist breach or they're just, they know that it's there. 
Um, do they stay in the water and keep their eyes on it, or do they just beeline it to get out as quick as they can? Because I say this because I've seen sea lions ghosting sharks behind and nipping at their fins. You know, they're aware of them, they see them, they're not a threat, they can turn and swim faster. Um, it's kind of like us. As long as you can see them, you're fine, right? Do they do the same thing, the fur seals? Yeah, so it's different strategies for different areas. And yeah. um, I'm sure she can elaborate more on, on Dyer Island and, and enhanced by. But certainly at Seal Island in False Bay, the area that the white sharks were predating on the seals is free of any real um, area that the seals can hide. Mm. So the seals, rather than trying, if the shark fails in its initial attempt, rather than trying to rush back to the island because they're not nearly as fast as the sharks, will try and get as close to the sharks as they possibly can, obviously behind the mouth and usually from the gills towards the tail. And in that way, the shark has to use very tight turns to line those seals up. But the agility of the seal allows it to keep dodging and ducking and diving from the shark's jaw. And the shark has got the power and the shark has, has, has cert certainly got the speed but the seals have got both agility and endurance. And that's where this tremendous balance comes in. And Mossel Bay is pretty similar. Once those seals leave the island, there's no kelp. There are no reef, major reef structures. There's nowhere for them to hide. So if they encounter a white shark, the best defense is rather to keep an eye on the enemy you know mm -hmm. than wonder where the enemy is that you don't know. So they try and stay as close to those sharks until the sharks eventually realize that the seals got the better of them, they dive down and the seal will then track back to the island. The problem for that seal is the commotion caused by that initial interaction is a cue for other white sharks to come mm. into the area. Much like when a lion is grabbing a kudu or a wildebeest or something like that, that death bleat is a call to all other predators in the area. Mm. So for the seals, it really is a catch-22. You dodge the one shark, but you might still run into another. Guys on the guy who tried to hit him now, there's somebody else coming behind him. Yeah, we saw yeah. that time and time again. You know, dodge the one, but there's another one knocking on the door. So beware. Yeah. Alison, do you see the same behavior in your area? Yeah, well, I mean, the different areas all have sort of different topography and, and, yeah. and structure. So Dyer Island is really interesting because it's actually the only seal colony in South Africa that's surrounded by thick, thick, dense uh, kelp forests. So actually, we do see the seals use the kelp as a bit of refuge. Uh, we also see occasionally white sharks going into the kelp, not deep, deep in, but in enough that they can chase seals around. Uh, mm. We've used fin cams in collaboration with universities in the US that have uh, we've actually filmed that. Um, but I guess with air jaws, one thing I really enjoy about it is that we, if, as a scientist, you know, I'm stuck a lot with data, with GPSs, mm. with looking at maps and looking at kind of, you know, from a very polarized angle. But if I can get out on a boat and I can actually look at it with the, you know, obviously the sharp, we, allowing me to go out with all this, uh, these cameras, drones in the air, you just learn so, so many things that you didn't quite anticipate. So going down to Plettenberg Bay, for example, a couple of years ago, again, on an air jaw shoot exactly as you were saying about the seal mobbing behavior. I'd never actually witnessed that to the same, to such a degree as we did uh, on that film shoot, where we were literally sat on top of a peninsula, looking down, watching as white sharks are patrolling in really clear water. You know, I think the, the conditions definitely play a big part in this. Um, the Cape Fistle would, would physically mob the shark at its tail. So they would, they would sort of all crowd it and, and it physically chase it away if it's a small animal. So. Again, different areas, different behaviors, but certainly uh, the Cape Fur seals are very agile. And 
what we would see as well at Dyer Island is porpoising quite a lot. So that would be mm. indicative to knowing there's a shark around. So if we're looking around on the surface from the boat and we see uh, an outward bound or an inward bound group of Cape Firstials jumping in erratic directions uh, away from one another, that's usually a signal there's a shark that they've locked onto. Um, and, and as you said, if, if they're death bleat, then it is ringing the, the dinner bell. So as, as you say, if there's one shark around that's attempted and failed, most likely is that it's not the only shark around. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's, it's always fascinating to see all the differences in the different areas. Uh, I wanted to turn to uh, kind of more your field, you know, the, the data and the science of all this. You know, Chris mentioned in the show that um, as amazing as these sharks are, there might only be a few hundred of them left in, in that area. Um, what is the data that you're seeing show you in terms of population and, you know, what scarcity there is and whether it's on the increase or decline? Well, population dynamics of white sharks is a really, really controversial area because it's such a complex thing to do. I mean, we're looking from anchored chum vessels mostly. So there's a big element called capture heterogeneity involved, which is, you know, baited environments bringing in sharks. You're only counting the bold individuals that are there. So at the moment, we've got eight white sharks swimming around in Hansby that have come back. They're all animals that left the area and came back. We've had them in our database for years and years. And we take a receiver out on the boat every day. And we've tagged a lot of them now. And it can be often actually that those sharks are there, but they're just not showing at the boat. Because mm. remember down in South Africa, the chumming, the, all the, the ways that the researchers use to get the sharks in to either photo ID them or tag them, you know, they involve having a bait line or an incentive at the boat. And so then we often look at that and think, right, well, that, that, those are the sharks that are in this area. And actually, no, many times they're, they're completely ignoring that environment. So there's loads and loads of different things to take into account when you're counting white sharks. Now, the limitation we have in South Africa is that, unfortunately, there isn't government funding for tagging. So we have to privately raise all of our own um, funding for these tags, and they're expensive devices. So we have a real lack of satellite tags on animals down here at the moment. So when we're looking at where they're going, we're actually only looking at coastal movement. Um, so, again, it's so difficult to give you a number, uh, Luke, of, of whether we are seeing you know, X amount declining. Uh, certainly what I can say from our estimate that we put out in 2012 in Hansby, remember, it was just a regional estimate. It wasn't sure. a national estimate. Uh, we counted uh, over a five year period around between 800 to 1000 that moved through the bay. Okay. Uh, and we said in that paper, you know, we're concerned because South Africa was the first country in the world to protect them back in 91. Mm -hmm. We would like to see the number higher. But to be able to decipher whether it, there is a, an increase, a stabilization or a decrease would take a lot more than sort of what we got available in terms of a data set right now. And there is a national estimate underway. But certainly what I can say is there's been some regional abandonments, uh, particularly in Hansby, uh, where we, we would see uh, upwards of, say, 12, 15 sharks on a good day. Between 2017 and now, really, it's gone, mm. it's gone dramatically down. In other areas east, we're seeing the complete opposite to that, Plettenberg Bay, Algoa. Um, we're seeing reports of white sharks that are far higher from user groups than, than previously we knew of. So again, unless you've got every shark, like in America, your federal funding is wonderful and your enforcement of law, you have a lot of white sharks in the Pacific and on the Atlantic side that have satellite transmitters and acoustic uh, networks as well. So I guess, yeah, there really needs to be a combination of, of scientific uh, devices out and, and collaboration to get that robust estimate. So for now, I'm not going to say whether I think it's increasing, decreasing. <laughs> I'm just going to say there's, there's areas where we've definitely seen re regional abandonment um, and certainly... You know, what all plays into this is that everybody needs to work together. And particularly if you've got a government law, it needs to be enforced. And resources need to be put in place now if, if, if the consensus is that we are seeing a decrease. And that could well be the case. But as I say, the but it's so hard to tell. 
I mean, that's uh, an extremely, you know, prudent and cautious scientific response uh, to an extremely complex question. I mean, the, the reality is it's a big ocean. We have limited resources, no matter what government is funding it, to actually go out and find the animals because sometimes they just don't want to be found. Um, but I'm curious about the abandonment because that's something that we can very visually see. It's something that is publicly known, um, especially in areas that perhaps have come to rely on that tourism or areas that perhaps have had a historical... Um, perhaps desire for the sharks not to be around those areas. So what happens when an area becomes abandoned by sharks to the local culture, the local feeling towards the white sharks? Well, first of all, the predator ecology side of things, that we have a whole ecosystem that has African penguins on a colony. We've got Cape fur seals and that whole, that whole system changes in the absence of white sharks. So <clears throat> even taking economics away from it or, you know, the, the effects on the coastal towns um, and the industries, that's really worrying okay so obviously white sharks are one of the apex predators in this temperate water ecosystem that we have access to once they're gone things do start to change and that again is a, is a major warning sign um from from the cage diving industry side of things and from you know the coastal towns economy drastic impacts uh, again in false bay with cape town chris can also um probably mm. comment there you know these are are whole towns that rely on that tourism so and they've been going for decades now having particularly international guests come in, not just go out and see a white shark for an experience, but stay in the local guest houses, participate in nature trails, you know, basically put back into the, the, the livelihood of that, that local town. And once the white sharks have gone, then obviously there's a big, a big pressure there, a big economic pressure. Uh, there's a lack of tourists then, there's a lack of people coming through. Uh, we're very lucky in the Hansby region, another species of shark showed up um, and actually started to respond in the absence of white sharks but for diving tourism, the bronze whaler shark. Uh, we also call it the copper shark. So by, yeah, some magical uh, miracle, I don't know, Hansby has managed to, to get through it, but it's had a drastic impact. Uh, now the white sharks have returned, but we don't know if that's going to be prolonged. We don't know. What we haven't discussed here is that Hansby was heavily visited by two orcas, uh, repetitively over the last few years. And every time they came through, uh, we would get uh, disappearances of white sharks in correlation yeah. with that. So we, we do believe in the region I'm based um, from the data that we've collected from all of our observations, also from necropsying the dead sharks and tracking all the killer whales, that there's no denying that they had a major impact. But obviously the broader picture, you cannot say that this regional stock is representative of the entire South African population. So it's kind of picking apart all of that. Because obviously, if you're seeing a regional stock disappear, um, it has huge ramifications, both economically and ecologically. Yeah. And uh, Chris, you're so well connected to the economy of, you know, what white sharks can generate in the area and also the local you know, opinions of it. What do you see change in South Africa when you have that abandonment? Perhaps whatever reason the abandonment happens. But what do you see change in you know, the local feeling about white sharks? Well, I think over the years, people have become to realize that the great white sharks are, are not only a, a, a financial asset to our country, they also are very important ecologically. Mm. And bearing in mind so many of the documentaries are filmed in our, in our country, you know, the amount of exposure and positive exposure having great white sharks along our coastline has given South Africa from a tourism point of view has been unprecedented. Uh, up until the crashes in Khanspai and, and False Bay, we were seeing upwards of 100,000 foreign tourists coming to South Africa every single year who listed the primary reason for coming 
uh, being to see great white sharks. So that mm. that has had a tremendous you know negative effect on our economy. South Africa is also a country that's trying incredibly hard to create new job opportunities through uh, tourism. And as such, when one of the essentially the golden gooses has its head chopped off, um, you know, it, it certainly has big spin-off effects. And, you know, um, Alison, you know, touched on a couple of the reasons for why the white sharks have disappeared in Hansbach. We've got our own theories in False Bay, as I alluded to um, a little while earlier. The smaller sharks, we know that they used to, the white sharks would feed inshore, and we would find them exactly where those smaller sharks are. And with the overfishing of those species in False Bay and elsewhere, specifically with shark longlining, you know, that's that's had a huge effect. And then I think another thing that cannot be ignored, and, you know, there's no point about uh, beating about the bush here because it's not going to help anybody, but South Africa's got the world's largest regulated great white shark killing machine, and that is the Natal Sharks Board mm. that puts out nets and drum lines to capture these animals. And they catch between 11 and 60 great white sharks a year. And as Ali said, there's a lot of conjecture about how many white sharks there are out there. I very firmly believe the numbers are, are decreasing rapidly. But um, 11 to 60 great white sharks been taken knowingly been taken out of a population every year. We have sport fishing uh, illegal recreational sport fishing off the beaches taking place. We've heard of many poaching incidents. So, you know, Alison also touched on it when she said, no matter what the reasons are, no matter what we agree or disagree on, the fact is there's very little enforcement and there's very, there's very little compliance. And it's all very well having a protected species, but if you, if you can't protect it, and enforce those laws and punish those who, who you know, contravene those laws, what's the point of, of calling the animal protected? And, and that's essentially where we are in South Africa, whether people yeah. like it or not. Explain to me, if it, is it a regional thing that you've got, you know, an Natal shark board that is able to capture them on long lines in a protected area? Like, how's that working? Am I mixing up my areas of protection? Essentially, the white sharks are moving along our entire coastline. Yeah. So the Natal Sharks Board works for those who ge geographically aren't aware of where they, they operate. They work in the northeastern corner of South Africa and over several several hundred kilometers. And they set drum lines to catch specifically great white sharks, tigers and bull sharks. In a protected area, though. Yeah, those are their three target species. But the white sharks that are in Cape waters also move into those waters. So they undoubtedly are, are affected by that. It's not like... Each area, Hans Bay or False Bay or Mossel Bay, has got a local population that doesn't go anywhere from those areas. Yeah. They they move extensively along our coastline, and tagging studies have shown that they move, you know, intercontinentally. And um, you know, if there's a threat that's not taken care of, if if your if your if your neighbour's doing something, ultimately it affects you as well. And and we we see that, you know, Western Cape sharks move into Natal waters where the sharks board are, and, and many get killed there. And then the recreational fishing of our, our beaches, you know, people think it's fine. You catch a white shark and you release it and it swims off. But we've all seen all of us that are working with white sharks on a regular basis. We've all seen these animals with hooks in their mouths, trailing long, long amounts of, of line and trace. And many of these white sharks we know also die as a result of, of post-traumatic uh, physical injury from being hooked. So they're, they're huge, they're a huge amount of, of human-induced threats. 
The biggest for me is the removal of these smaller sharks that are key to the white sharks for a large part of their life. And then, as Alison said, you know, orcas certainly haven't helped either. And, um, you know, they, they have a, 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 a big effect on, on the white sharks for what I would say would be a short term to medium term. And all of these things combining together undoubtedly have hammered South Africa's great white sharks. And, you know, we can't control orcas, but we can certainly control stopping long lining of sharks in our country. We can stop yeah. the Natal Sharks Board killing sharks. The days of, of thinking that white sharks are just out there wantonly killing people are, are long gone. It's an archaic practice that should have stopped decades ago. And any country that's promoting uh, sharks from a tourism point of view shouldn't on the flip side of that be killing them. That's my feeling. Amen. I certainly agree there with Chris. Yeah. He's put it so well. And remember as well, Luke, that these are not South African white sharks we're dealing with, actually. They're Southern African white sharks, yeah. which is a whole different ballgame. Uh, majority of them go past Durban that survive the gill nets and the drum lines there. Uh, and then they've got Mozambique. And I can, one positive I can say from the satellite tracking data last year, Mozambique finally... Um, have now declared white sharks as a protected species along their coastline. So we also have to acknowledge with the limited resources down here, whenever there is a win, and we need to support that. Likewise with the longliners, as Chris said, you know, it's there's so many fisheries now and there's so many methods. And whether we believe it's extraction of the smaller sharks or, you know, monitors are now being put on those longlining vessels, electronic monitors. So all these things, you know, with limited resources need to be, you know, need to be supported as well. And, and I guess, being inclusive of all the information. These white sharks, they go offshore, they spend big amounts of time in the deep sea. And it's really complex to try and describe, you know, I guess what, what all these different impacts are having in these different areas. Uh, the killer whales, yes, short to term meet, uh, impacts, let's say a couple of months each time they come through. But when they repetitively return, repetitively return to an area like Hansby, that short to medium term can turn into years very quickly. And especially because white sharks don't decipher which killer whales it is. Remember, white sharks evolved like 45 million years ago. Orcas only came around 5 million years ago. So they've developed strategies to stay the hell away from them and to stay away from areas where they have encountered them before. That's been published in um, America as well as the Californian coast. Um, but all of these things are probably interconnected. Removal of prey, overfishing, orcas inshore more prevalent, you know, overlapping with white sharks in areas they never used to. Um, so absolutely. And all of this uh, work we do with Shark Week, if anything, you know, it really brings exposure to that and, 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 and gives us a platform to, to, um, to sort of bring awareness to it. Well, it feels like we should have a show where all we do is talk about, you know, the malpractice of people on one hand advertising sharks and on the other hand just shooting themselves in the foot by taking them out. Um, but I don't want to end the show there. So uh, perhaps I could ask both of you, you know, this was a, a really fun show to watch. We got to see great whites, uh, frankly, in their majesty and also, you know, got to have some fun with the whole competition of it. So uh, I want to ask both of you, perhaps, Alison, you could start. Um, what's your take home message or, you know, final thoughts or most fun thing about this shoot? Oh, OK. So. This is always going to stand out in my mind because I, I'm actually 30 weeks pregnant. So I'm a, a child in a, in a few weeks time. So 
women in science. Um, a lot of time Shark Week, we do have quite a male dominated uh, mm. lineup of hosts. And, you know, it's starting to change now. And I think I'm probably one of the first people that's been on Shark Week as, you know, a pregnant female out there in the field. So I'm, I would particularly send a message to young women in America who are studying marine biology that would like to, you know, kind of feel a bit intimidated about the field or feel, you know, they're not going to make it through and they can't balance work and life and, and all the because it is hard as women, we are expected to be mums as well if we want to, uh, you know, make it in life. So I guess my, my point is, you know, if you're passionate about something, you believe in the cause, you work hard, you're capable of anything, actually. And I'm seeing a lot more inclusivity and a lot more women on these shows now, which is fantastic. Um, and I guess so, so that for me, just reflecting back on, on this year will always stand out from that standpoint. How nice the crew were to me, not making me go out in rough seas and all the all the all the conditions we have to go out in usually um, to get the shots. But yeah, I guess as well, coupled with that, a major point is conservation of sharks is undeniable now. I mean, if you're not in support of it, then you seriously need to wake up. Uh, And of course, you know, overfishing, all these um, topics that we touch on. We've, we've showcased now wonderfully again and again the majesty of the great white shark, but it's, it's an ambassador for all the other species. So all the other types that are suffering, don't, yeah, let's not keep the white sharks just as a separate. Let's you know, be inclusive of the 536 species. They need help. They need help urgently. Support shark conservation, support legitimate NGOs that are struggling to do research, particularly on the um, back end of the pandemic now, like down in, in South Africa here. Um, and your voice really can can make a difference. So yeah, especially through social media, um, yeah. you know, I think everybody has that has that ability now to speak up for sharks. So that's uh, that's my reflection on this year. Uh, that's an excellent reflection, and I do want to mention. Thank you for saying that about women in science. My uh, four year old, almost five year old daughter now is absolutely obsessed with science and scientists. I've I've probably had something to do with that. Um, yeah. but, you know, she loves aquanauts and uh, particularly sharks. Um, but even in that, there's kind of a lack of females even just in the books that she reads. And I'm like, hey, women can get out there and, you know, I'm teaching her to get out there. I'm going to show her this video and, so, and say, look, here is a strong woman out there. She's actually pregnant and she's studying and playing with white sharks. I think that's, that's absolutely amazing. So you're an inspiration to my daughter and uh, thank you for that. It can be done. What's your daughter called? Sorry, Lee. Kayliana. Her name is Kayliana Blue. I, I, I got to pick her middle name. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very ocean relative name. I love that. Well, she can go get it, Kayliana. She can do whatever she wants. And yeah, I would love to meet her one day if she's ever down in South Africa. Thank you for that. Chris, what are your thoughts on this latest installment of Air Jaws? Well, I think Alison summed up you know, so many things so succinctly. But for me, <clears throat> it was really a, a celebration of the sharks and what they're capable of. And I, I think really... You know, Jeff Kerr has put together an incredible show that that really will just showcase these animals as they should be seen. Unbelievable athletes, um, Olympic athletes doing things that are, are truly remarkable, that entertain us, enlighten us, educate us, and, and, and hopefully instill in us a desire to conserve them. And sharks are in huge trouble. I'm not going to mince my words, you know. Governments really need to to step in and start doing things. There's there's just too much talk out there and and too little action for those who have spent uh, our lives on the ocean, looking at sharks on a daily basis. We're seeing far far fewer of them. And if we don't take action now, 
we'll be telling the next generation what we used to see rather than the, the generation to come saying, hell, you know what? It's great seeing these sharks as well. So we need to celebrate them, conserve them, and really do our best to make sure they're there forever. And I hope the show helps do that in some other way. Well, thank you for making shows like this. Honestly, the, the fun ones are good to inspire people. The scientific ones are great to sort of educate them. But I think shows like this come along and you're just like, yes, that's something I can show anybody. They'll have a great time on it. Well, hey, look, I want to thank you both for being here and spending this amount of time with us. You know, these chats are something that, you know, it's really good to kind of get behind the scenes of everything. And you both are so passionate and so dedicated to the area uh, that you work in. I think that's something that everyone should be inspired by. So thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for thank the you opportunity. And that's your Daily Bite. Thanks so much for joining us. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you on the next Daily Bite.